The Robert C. Parker cast presents the class of 2022 in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the cast of 2022 and the star of these broadcasts, Stephen Walden. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was to be watched closely by intelligence that is greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transcendent creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Infinite compliance people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, human has inherited out the dark mystery of time and space. If across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, until as fast, cool, and unsympathetic regarded this earth with envious eyes, slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment near the end of it. March. This is was better. The war scare is over. More humans were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, April 1st, the Crowsley service estimated that 32 million people would listen in on radio. So in the next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. Slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain. Accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Albany Weather Bureau. We take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you'll be entertained by the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, from the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City. We bring you the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra, with a touch of the Spanish, Ramon Raquello leads off with La Comparsita. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 Central Time, Professor Hawkins of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen, and moving towards the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Sherry of the, of, of the Dudley Observatory at Albany confirms Hawkins' observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We return you now to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York.
Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Sherry, who will give us his views on this event in a few moments. We take you to the Dudley Observatory at Albany, New York. We return to you, until then, to the music of Ramon Riquello and his orchestra. We are ready now to take you to the Dudley Observatory at Albany, where Annabelle Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor John Sherry, famous astronomer. We take you now to Albany, New York. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Annabelle Phillips speaking to you from the Observatory of Dudley. I am standing in a large semicircular room, pitch black, except for an oblong split in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of the huge telescope. The ticking sound you hear is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Sherry stands directly above me on a small platform, peering through the giant lens. I ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. For his ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Sherry may be interrupted by telephone or other communications. During this period, he's in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin our questions? At any time, Mrs. Phillips. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mrs. Phillips. A red disk swimming in a blue sea, transverse stripes across the disk. Quite distinct now because Mars happens to be the point nearest to Earth, in opposition as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse strikes signify, Professor Cherry? Not pronounced, I can assure you, Mrs. Phillips, although that's the popular conjuncture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the strikes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then you're quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I'd say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for these gas eruptions occurring in the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Mrs. Phillips, I cannot account for it. By the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from the Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. Well, that seems a safe enough distance. Thank you. Just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Sherry a message. While he reads it, let me remind, let me remind you that we are speaking to you from the observatory at, in Albany, New York. We are interviewing the world-famous astronomer, Professor Sherry. One moment, please. Professor Sherry has passed me a message which she has just received. Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certainly, Mrs. Phillips. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll share with you a wire addressed to Professor Sherry from Dr. Gray, National History Museum, New York. Quote, 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost earthquake. Intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of, of Albany. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief Astronomical Division. Unquote. Professor Sherry, could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Hardly, Mrs. Phillips. This is a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past ten minutes, we've been speaking to you from the observatory at Albany, bringing you a special interview with Professor Sherry, noted astronomer. This is Annabelle Phillips speaking. We are returning you now to our New York studio. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Toronto, Canada, 
Professor Morse of the Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. Now nearer home comes a special bulletin from Troy, New York. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object believed to be a meteorite fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Winantskill, New York, 22 miles from Troy. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Schenectady. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Annabelle Phillips, give you a word picture of the scene as soon as she can reach there from Albany. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millette and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. Take you now to Violent Skill, New York. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Annabelle Phillips again out of the Wilmoth Farm, Violent Skill, New York. Professor Sherry and myself made 11 miles from Albany in 10 minutes. Well, I hardly know where to begin to paint for you a word picture of the strange scene before my eyes like something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing, directly in front of me, half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree and must have struck on its way down. What I can see of the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least, not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. It has a diameter of, what would you say, Professor Sherry? What would you say? What is the diameter of this? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheet is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white. Curious spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. They're getting in front of my line of vision. Will you mind standing to one side, please? One side. There. One side. While the policemen are pushing the crowd back, here's Mr. Wilmoth, owner of the farm here. He might have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmoth, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilmoth. Well, I was listening to the radio. Closer and louder, please. Pardon me? Close, louder, please, and closer. Yes, sir. I was listening to the radio, kind of drowsing. That professor fellow was talking about Mars. I was half dozing and half... Yes, yes, Mr. Wilmoth, and then what happened? Well, as I was saying, I was listening to the radio, kind of, halfways. Yes, Mr. Wilmoth, and then you saw something? No, first off, I heard something. And what did you hear? A hissing sound like this. Kind of like a 4th of July rocket. Yes, then what? I turned my head out the window and would have swore I was to sleep and dreaming. Yes? I seen that kind of greenish streak, and then zingo, something smacked the ground, knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, you were frightened, Mr. Wilmoth. Well... I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was kind of riled. Thank you, Mr. Roma. Thank you very much. Want me to tell you some more? No, that's quite all right. That's fine. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mr. Wilmoth, owner of the farm where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us, and the police are trying to rope off the roadway leading into the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. Cars' headlights throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the object's half buried. Now some of the more daring souls are now venturing near the edge. Their silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with the policeman. The policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but now it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen, please. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll move the microphone near now. Now I'm not more than 25 feet away. Can you hear it now? Oh, Professor Sherry! 
Yes, Mr. Phillips. Can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside this thing? Possible be unequal cooling of its surface. I see. Do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Not found on this earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. The thing is smooth, as you can see, it's cylindrical shape. Just a minute, uh, something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific! The end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw, and the thing must be hollow. Stop that! 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 Stop are they eyes? It might be a face. It might be. Good heavens! Something's wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one, and another one, and another one. They look like tentacles to me. I can see the thing's body now. It's large, large as a bear, and it glistens like wet leather. But that face, it, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and gleam like a serpent. The mouth is V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips that seem to quiver and pulsate. The monster, or whatever it is, can hardly move. It seems weighed down by possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now, and the crowd falls back now. Ladies and gentlemen, they've seen plenty. This is the most extraordinary experience. Ladies and gentlemen, I can't find words. I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I can take a new position. Oh, hold on, please. I'll be back in a minute. Eyewitness account of what's happening at Wilmoth Farm, Wine and Skill, New York. We return you now to Annabelle Phillips at Wine and Skill. Ladies and gent, am I on? Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of the stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmoth's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk, as long as I can see. More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain is conferring with someone. You can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Sherry. Yes, it is. Now they've parted and the professor moves around one side, studying the object. While well, the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. A flag of truce. Those creatures know what that means. What anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. A hump shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against the mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame streaming from that mirror, and at least we got the dancing men. It's just on the head. Good lord, they're running into flames! Now the whole field's caught on fire! The woods, the barns, the gas tanks of automobiles, it's spreading everywhere. It's coming this way about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to the circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed a message that came in from one skill by telephone. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of one skill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith commander of the state militia at Troy, New York. 
I have been requested by the governor of New York to place the condition of Marshall and Middlesex as far west on Albany and east to Jamesburg under national law. No, no one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass and sued by state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding, proceeding from Troy to Winscale and will aid in the of homes within the original military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to General Montgomery Smith commanding the state militia at Troy. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Wangan Skill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Rensselaer County are fighting the flames, which menace the entire countryside. We've been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Wynetskill, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you to just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Sherry has been located at a farmhouse near Skill, where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Sherry, but brought to you by DirectWire. Professor Sherry. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information, either to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It's my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute no conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. That is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Sherry. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Troy. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Annabelle Phillips has been identified in a Troy hospital. Now here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C., the Office of the Director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia stationed outside Wynanskill, New York. Here's a bulletin from State Police, Albany Junction. The fires at um, Wynanskill and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit and there's no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement of Mr. Harry McDonald, Vice President in Charge of Operations. We have received a request from the state militia at Troy to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In view of the gravity of the situation and believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia at Troy. We take you now to the field headquarters of the state militia near Winanskill, New York. This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps, attached to the state militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Winanskill. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, is surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry, without heavy field pieces, but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. The things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all the reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their khaki uniforms crossing back and forth in front of the lights. It looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering the Hudson River. Probably fire started by campers. Well, we ought to see some action soon. 
One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it will all be over. Now wait a minute. I see something at the top of the cylinder. No, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmoth farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. A top, rather. Wait, that wasn't a shadow. It's something moving. Solid metal, kind of a shield-like affair rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. Why, it's standing on legs. Actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on! Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our own eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed on the New York farmlands now are the, the vanguard of an invading enemy from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Wynanskill has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest ran across the battle area from Wynanskill to East Greenbush, crampled and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cylinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of New York and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Troy to Albany. Railroad tracks are torn and service from Troy to Albany discontinued, except routing some of the trains through through Schenectady and Rensselaer. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Troy, Rensselaer County, and Albany. It is estimated to twice their normal population. Martial law prevails through downtown Troy and New York City. At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area, and we place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and confiscated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We are informed the central position of New Jersey is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray up on power lines and electrical equipment. Here's a special bulletin from New York. Cables have been received from English, French, and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The majority voiced opinion that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. There have been several attempts made to locate Professor Sherry of Albany, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared she was lost in the recent battle. Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops, moving north towards Somerville with the population fleeing ahead of them. The heat ray is not in use. Although advancing at express train speed, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here is a bulletin from Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Coon hunters have stumbled upon a second cylinder, similar to the first, embedded in the Great Swamp, 20 miles south of Morristown. Army field pieces are proceeding from Newark to blow up invading unit before cylinder can be opened and the fighting machine rigged. They are taking up position in the foothills of the Washtung Mountains. Another bulletin from Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report enemy machines, now three in number, increasing speed northward, kicking over houses and trees in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies south of Morristown. Machines also sighted by telephone operator east of Middlesex within 10 miles of Plainfield. Here's a bulletin from Winston Field, Long Island. A fleet of army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of enemy. 
Scouting planes act as guides. They keep the speeding enemy in sight. Just a moment, please, ladies and gentlemen. We've er, we've run special wires to the artillery line and adjacent villages to give you a direct reports in the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take you to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery, located in the Watchtong Mountains. Range, 32 meters. 32 meters. Projection, 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire! 140 yards to the right, sir. Shift range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Projection, 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire! A hit, sir. We got the tripod of one of them. They've stopped and the others are trying to repair it. Quick, get the range. Shift 30 meters. 30. Projection, 27 degrees. 27 degrees. Fire! Can't see the shell land, sir. They're letting off a smoke. What is it? A black smoke, sir. Moving this way, lying close to the ground. It's moving fast. Put on gas masks. Get ready to fire. Shift 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection, 24 degrees. 24 degrees. Fire! Still can't see, sir. The smoke's coming near. Get the range. 23 meters. 23 meters. <laughs> Projection 22 degrees. 22 degrees. <laughs> Army bombing plane B843 off Bethlehem, New York. Lieutenant Bot commanding eight bombers. Reporting to Commander Fairfax, Langham Field. This is Bot reporting to Commander Fairfax, Langham Field. Enemy tripod Martians now in sight. Reinforced by three Martians from the Morristown Cylinder. Six altogether. One Martian partially crippled. Leaves hit by a shell from army gun and wolf in Wachung Mountains. Guns now appear silent. A heavy black fog came in close to the earth of extreme density. Nature unknown. No sign of heat ray. Enemy now turns east, crossing Pacific River into the into the Jersey marshes. Another straddles the Paluski Skyway. Evident objective is New York City. They're pushing down a high-tension power station. The Martians are close together now and we're ready to attack. Plane circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards and we'll be over the first. Eight hundred yards. Six hundred. Four hundred. Two hundred. There they go. The giant arm raid. New Jersey calling Langham Field. This is Bayonne, New Jersey calling Langham Field. Come in, please. This is Langham Field. Go ahead. Eight army bombers and engagement with enemy tripod machines over Jersey Falls. Engines incapacitated by heat rate. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke in direction of. This is Newark, New Jersey. This is Newark, New Jersey. Warning. Poisonous black smoke pouring in from Jersey marshes. Reaches South Street. Gas masks useless. Urge population to move into open spaces. Automobiles use routes 7, 23, 24. Avoid congested areas. Smoke now spreading over Raymond Boulevard. 2X2L, calling CQ. 2X2L, calling CQ. 2X2L, calling 8X3R. Come in, please. This is 8X3R coming back at 2X2L. House reception, house reception. Okay, please. Where are you? 8X3R, what's the matter? Where are you? Speaking from the roof of the broadcasting building, New York City. I'm speaking from the roof of the broadcasting building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn people to evacuate the city as the Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. Hutchison River Parkway still kept open for motor traffic. Avoid bridges to Long Island. Hopelessly jammed. All communication with Jersey Shore closed ten minutes ago. No more defenses. The army is 
wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. People are holding service here below us in the cathedral. Now I look down the harbor, all manner of boats overloaded with fleeing population pulling out from docks. Streets are jammed, noise and crowds like New Year's Eve in city. Wait a minute, the, the enemy is now inside of both the palisades. Five great machines, first one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, waiting, waiting the Hudson like a man waiting through a brook. A bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis, seem to be timed in space. And now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. His steel, cowlish head is even with the skyscraper. He waits for the others. They, they, they rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out. Black smoke dripping over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running towards the East River. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue, 5th Avenue, uh, 100, 100 yards away. It's 50 feet. Two X12 calling secure. Two X12 calling secure. Two X12 calling secure. New York, isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? Two X12. You are listening to a Parker presentation of Orson Welles and the Parker Theater on the air with an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Parker Broadcasting System. As I set down these notes on paper, I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on earth. I've been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life, a life that has no continuity with the present furtive existence of the lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of John Sherry. I look down at my blackened hands, my torn shoes, my tattered clothes, and I try to connect them with a professor who lives in Albany, and who, on the night of October 30th, glimpsed through his telescope an orange flash of light on a distant planet. My light, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my, my world, where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I John Sherry? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? This time passed when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks. In writing down my daily life, I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movements of the stars, but to write I must live, and to live I must eat. I find moldy bread in the kitchen, and orange not too spoiled to swallow. Keep watch at the window. From time to time I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. The smoke still holds the house in its black coil, but at length there is a hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam, as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. It's morning. Morning. Sun streams through the window. The black cloud of gas is lifted, and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm has passed over them. I venture from the house. I make my way to a road. No traffic. Here and there a wrecked car, baggage overturned, a blackened skeleton. I push on north. For some reason, I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them. And I keep a careful watch. I have seen the Martians feed. Should one of the machines appear above the trees, I am ready to fling myself flat onto the earth. 
I come to a chestnut tree. October chestnuts are ripe. I fill my pockets. I must keep alive. Two days I wander in a vague northerly direction through a desolate world. Finally, I notice a living creature, a small red squirrel in a beech tree. I stare at him and wonder. He stares back at me. I believe at that moment the animal and I shared the same emotion, the joy of finding another living thing. I push on north. I find dead cows in a brackish field, and beyond the charred ruins of a dairy, the silo remains standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse deserted by the sea. Astride the silo perches a weathercock. The arrow points north. Next day I come to the city, a city vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its buildings strangely dwarfed and leveled off as if a giant had sliced off its highest towers with a capricious sweep of its hand. I reached the outskirts. I found Newark, undemolished but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it. It rose up and became a man, a man armed with a large knife. Where do you come from? I come from, from many places, a long time ago from Albany. Albany, huh? That's near Winescale. Yes. Winescale? <laughs> There's no food here. This is my country. All this end of the town to the river. There's only food for one. Which way are you going? I don't know. I guess I'm looking for, for people. What, what was that? that? Did you hear something just then? No, only a bird. A live bird! Yeah, you you get to know what, that birds have shadows these days. Hey, we're in the open here. Let's crawl in this doorway here and talk. Have you seen any Martians? Nah, they've gone over to New York. At night, the sky is alive with their lights, just as if people were still living in it. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I think they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, fly. Then it's all over with humanity. Stranger, there's still you and I, two of us left. Yeah, they've got themselves some solid. They wrecked the great, greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're beaten. Where were you? You're in a uniform. Yeah, that's what left. that's what's left of it. I was in the militia. National Guard. Huh. That's good. There wasn't any war. Anymore, there, there's war between people and ants. Yes, but we're eatable ants. I found that out. What'll they do with us? I've thrown it all out. Right now, we're caught as if we're wanted. The Martians only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep on doing that. They'll begin catching us systematically. Keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun. All this that's happened so far is because we don't have the sense enough to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff, losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Now, instead of our rushing around blind, we've got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nations, civilization, progress, done. Yes, but if that's so, what is there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts for a million years or so. And no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement, you're after. I guess the game's up. What is there left? Life. That's what. I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught either, tamed and fattened and bred like an ox. What are you going to do? I'm going on. Right under their feet. I got a plan. We as human we humans as humans are finished. We don't know enough. We gotta learn plenty before we got a chance. And we've got to live and keep free. We learn see? I thought it all out, see? Tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all for us that are made for wild beasts, and that's what it's got to be. That's why I watched you, watched you. All these little office workers 
that used to live in these houses, they'd be no good. They haven't any guts in them. They used to run, run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running to catch their commuters. Train in the morning, afraid they'd be fired if they didn't run, if they didn't, running back at night, afraid they won't be in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. Yeah, and on Sundays, worried about Monday. The Martians will be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages, good food, careful breeding, no worries. Yeah, after a week or so chasing about the field on empty stomachs, they'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? Sure, you bet I have. That isn't all. These Martians, they're going to make pets out of some of them, train them to do tricks. Who knows? Get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. Yeah, and some of, and some maybe they'll train to hunt us. No, that's impossible. No human being. Yes, they will. There's people who do it gladly. If one of them ever comes after me, why? In the meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the earth? I've got it all figured out. We'll live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers. Under New York, there are miles and miles of them. The main ones are big enough for anybody in their cellars, vaults, underground store rooms, railway tunnels, subways. You begin, you begin to see, eh? We'll get a bunch of strong people together. No weak ones. That's rubbish. Out. As you meant me to go? Well, I gave you a chance, didn't I? We won't quarrel about that. Go on. Well, we've got to make safe place for places for us to stay in. See? Get all the books we can. Science books? That's where people like you come in. See? We'll raid the museum. We'll even spy on the Martians. It may not be so much. We have to learn before. Listen, just imagine this. Four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays right and left, and not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, see? But humans? Humans who have learned the way how. It may even be in our time. Gee, imagine having one of them lovely things with a heat ray, wide and free. We'd turn it on Martians. We'd turn it on men. We'd bring everybody down on their knees. That's your plan? Yeah, you and me and a few more of us, we don't the world. I see. Hey, hey, what's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Well, after parting with the artillerymen, I came at last to the Great Holland Tunnel. I entered that silent tube, anxious to know the fate of the great city on the other side of the Hudson. Cautiously, cautiously I came out of the tunnel and made my way up Canal Street. I reached 14th Street, and there again were black powder and several bodies. An evil, ominous smell from the grand gratings of the cellars and the, some of the houses. I wandered up through the 30s and 40s. I stood alone on Times Square. I caught sight of a lean dog running down 7th Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws and a pair of starving mongrels at his heels. He made a wide circle around me as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. I walked up Broadway in the direction of that strange powder, past silent shop windows displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks, past the Capitol Theater, silent, dark, past the shooting gallery, where a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks. Near Columbus Circle, I noticed models of 1939 motor cars in the showrooms facing empty streets. From over the top of the General Motors building, I watched a flock of black birds circling the sky. I hurried on. Suddenly, I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine, standing somewhere in Central Park. An insane idea. I rushed recklessly across Columbus Circle and into the park. I climbed a small hill above the pond at 60th Street, and from there I could see, standing in a silent row along the mall, 19 of those great metal titans, their cowls empty, their steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly, my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of black birds that hovered directly below me. They circled to the ground, and there before my eyes, stark and silent, lay the Martians, with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in the laboratories, it was found they were killed by the putrefactive and diseased bacteria against which their systems were unprepared, slain after all man's defenses had failed by the humblest thing that God in his wisdom 
has put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell, there was a general persuasion that through all the deep of space no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. Now we see further. Dim and wonderful is the vision I have conjured in my mind of life spreading slowly from this little seed bed of this solar system throughout the inanimate vastness of sidereal space, but that's a remote dream. Maybe the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve. To them and not to us is the future ordained, perhaps. Strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study at Princeton, writing down this last chapter of the record begun at a deserted farm in Grover's Mill. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the green, where the new spring grass heals to the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers enter the museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it. Bright and clean cut. Hard and silent. Under the dawn of that last great day. This is Ian Marvini, language arts teacher at the Robert C. Parker School in Wyanskill, New York, and I approve this podcast.